Oh, yes. So, yes. So, just a reminder, there is a Tehillim group slash lunch taking place at my home next door. Uh, all are welcome. I don't have to RSVP. You could join. Not that far away in beautiful weather to enjoy as you walk down the block. So, uh, please feel free to join. My wife would love to see you all. And uh, there'll be Tehillim as well as uh, a beautiful lunch. So, enjoy. Okay. Um, so today we're actually going to be, this will be the final class on Be'er Hagola. Um, again, we've been skipping around in this book, and the, what I've been focusing on is different passages that bring out different points, because sometimes he'll, he'll try to make a point by saying, you know, similar idea a number of times. Each time there's something different, but I, I thought for the sake of really giving us a bird's eye view, we started the Sukkot, we're finishing around, you know, right before Purim, uh, I think we've gotten to get been able to see a good overview of this, of this book. Today, we're going to finish on a bit of a controversial note. Uh, the topic today is going to be that of non-Jews, and we'll see one passage, and he's going to share with us something which uh, is going to need some unpacking. It's a very profound idea, I think, a very important idea. Um, and so let's jump in. I think it'll give us some understanding, not only of, of this particular passage, uh, but also, as we'll see, I think a greater understanding of monotheism, the notion of a one God, uh, something which is core to our belief. Why is it so core to our belief? And, and we'll, we'll talk about that as well. Next week, we'll do something on Purim. The weeks after that, we'll, we'll do an overview of the Haggadah, and then we'll see what happens after Pesach. Okay? Here we go. Let's jump in. Okay. V'od Amru. They said further, She'aviru chok, that they, meaning the rabbis, again, the rabbis are the focus of this entire book, the, the sages in the Mishnah, the Talmud, She'aviru chok, that they changed laws. Vishinu es mishpat. The accusation is that they changed laws and they changed the mishpat, like the, the rules. They changed rules from the Torah to, uh, you know, negatively impact those who are not Jewish. Okay, we'll see the example that he's going to give. Kimosha Amru, this is a prime example. Shor re'ehu. The Torah, uh, last week we read Parshas Mishpatim, and the Torah describes an ox goring another ox. Okay, fine. Simple thing. So nowadays, I don't know, most of us don't have oxes. So an uh, oxen, imagine for us, maybe like a car uh, crashing into another car. Something, something along those lines, right? And the Torah, sa- and the Torah says, if it hits the shor re'ehu. Re'ehu literally means friends, but it's a general term that means someone else. My ox hits your ox. Okay, that's what the Torah says. And if it does, then the Torah has a whole bunch of rules in terms of how you pay the person back when that happens. Okay. But then the Gemara in Bavakama says the word re'ehu, the word friends, is a very deliberate word. Velo, velo shor nachri. And the, or really the term that's used actually, velo shor shal avodah That and not the ox of an idolater. Okay? Meaning, these rules of an ox scoring an ox, you have to pay the owner of the ox back, the one who was damaged, to pay them back. It only applies if it's a ox seemingly owned by, seemingly at first glance, a Jewish owner. But if you gore, if your ox scores an ox of a non-Jew, seemingly you don't have to pay back. Okay? V'zed near lahem, let's keep on reading. And this appears to them, and I think to many of us, chamas v'gazel v'oshek mishpat. This seems like stealing. This seems like a perversion of justice. Right? How could you, how could you say that if your ox goes ahead and gores another ox, that you'll be, that, that you're scot-free, Right? Doesn't make sense. So he says, as we're about to see, I will clarify that they did not uh, pervert, they did not change the rules for anyone in the world. Rather, everything, as we're about to see, everything they said was 
with righteousness. Okay. So now, and you're going to have to hold on tight. He's going to give a bit of an introduction, and then we'll come back to this passage and understand it, I think, with the new light. And again, a much better and I think greater appreciation for the impact of the Torah. And you'll see what I mean. Da, he says, you have to understand. Kibnei Adam, people, apidas Torah's Moshe mekubam chachamen, according to our tradition that is received from Moshe to our sages, nechlakim legimel chalakim. We can divide all of humankind into three different categories. Three different categories. Ha'echad, one, heima'am asher bachar bo Hashem isbarach ba'avos uvezaram acharem. There is one group of people called us. Those are the people, the nation which was chosen by God. God chose our forefathers and their descendants. And God gave us the Torah through Moshe. Okay. So category number one of Jews, sorry, category number one of humans, Jewish people. Great. Simple. Straightforward. Second category. Okay. Category number two. Sharbene Adam. She'enam bechlal Yisrael ha'shayachim b'toros Moshe. The rest of humankind, which is not... They're not Jews, okay? They're not connected to the Torah. They do not go out of what they should be doing to, and this, he's, he's using a, a Talmudic term, to flip over the bowl, okay? It's, it's a Talmudic term to be doing something which is backward, right? If you serve someone cereal, you know, so my baby, if they're upset, you know, she'll go ahead and she'll flip over the bowl. But obviously that makes no sense, right? It's something which is counterproductive. So he says there are those um, who are not Jewish, they're not connected to the Torah, but they don't go so far as to flip over the bowl. What would be flipping over the bowl in this context? They do not serve, um, they do not serve uh, beings other than God, who is the source of all. Instead, they serve a prime cause, God, which is the cause of everything. So basically, he's describing a second category. Who are the people in the second category? He's saying these are not Jews, but they're people who acknowledge a, a, a single God or a God that is the source of all. Who would fall under this category? Which types of non-Jews? Which faiths? Muslims. Certainly Muslims. Certainly Muslims are, are, are a much cleaner form of monotheism, for sure. And even within Christians... You know, uh, you know, we could talk about uh, the Trinity and we could talk about serving a human, but ultimately there is this belief, even within a, uh, a Roman Catholic version or a Greek Orthodox version of, of Christianity, which, which, is, which is a little bit more problematic in terms of a singular God, but they still believe in a prime cause and there being one God. They believe that there's some form of a division. It's a little complicated, uh, you know, uh, the, the Trinity, how it breaks down, but ultimately both Muslims and Christians believe in a prime force, in a creator of the world, in a world that was created by a God and, and, and the world being put into motion. That is category number two. Yeah, go ahead. Are you, are you saying also these are the Abrahamic? N- or we're not there? He's, he's not limiting it to, it, he doesn't, to, what he's describing over here is not so much about the history of where it came from, although we'll come back to that point. It's certainly true. It's certainly true. But theoretically, if you were to have a group that were to come along and say, we believe in a creator, and then they have other pieces to it, right? But ultimately, they believe in a creator of the world, everything stemming from that creator, that would be included in this second category uh, that he's describing. Okay? So far, so good. He says, wherever the t- In the Talmud, oftentimes the word Guy would show up. It's not a term that we typically use right now, but that's the term that's used. But it's, it's typically 
you, the, the, the term that we find in the Gemara is Oved Avodazara, someone who serves idols. Hakavanashu Oved Zulaso Yisbarach. The implication of that term is not the Christian, not the Muslim, but someone who does not believe in a creator. Okay? When they say Avodazara, what does the word Zar mean? Strange, foreign. Different, exactly. Klalo, the klalo, they included nikra avodazar. Anything which is independent, opposite of God, is called avodazar. Shakol zar eitzel. Excuse me. Thank you, thank you. zar eitzel That they are strange towards God. In other words, it is any when the Gemara speaks typically about non-Jews, it is talking about. Keep in mind, when is the Gemara written? Approximately five hundred. Did. Islam didn't exist. Christianity was almost a nobody at that time. Again, it was starting to develop, but, but the, certainly in the Babylonian Talmud, uh, they are not focused on extensively. Uh, you know, very, very minimally uh, are they focusing on Christians because Christianity, certainly in Babylon, was not really a force just yet. It was starting to pick up in certain regions. Um, but when the Gemara speaks about non-Jews, they use the term idolaters. And what is the word for idolatry? Ovde avoda zara. Zara means strange, foreign. And what that means is that for those people, their service is foreign to God. They, they see God almost as a foreigner. That's the way to look at it. That basically, to them, they don't believe in this creator. They believe, uh, you know, in, in, in whatever exactly the belief is, but it's not with this monotheistic, this one force that put the world into, exi- into existence, which is our belief, which we certainly share again with Muslims and we share to some degree with Christians. They believed in something else, which made this notion of this monotheistic God, this one singular God was totally foreign. Okay, and that's why when the Gemara speaks about idolatry, it doesn't say ovde elilim. Elilim means that they serve forces, gods. Okay, which would imply that they serve, you know, uh, graven images, you know, physical things. But that doesn't necessarily. If you'd say they're ovde elilim which is one of the, the biblical terms for idolatry, that doesn't necessarily preclude God, right? And so, he's, he's, you know, when we think of idolatry in Hebrew, there are a number of terms that come up. Serving the stars. Serving idols, right? Also serving gods. He points out that consistently throughout the Gemara, they pick a term which is meant to demonstrate that it's not about the fact that they're necessarily bowing down to a piece of wood or to a rock or to whatever, it's specifically those who serve, who believe, have a mindset, which is ne- the negation of God. It is independent of God. It's saying that monotheistic God, that, that singular God, it doesn't exist. And that's why they don't say one who serves wood or one who serves, which would be ovde elilim, rather it's avoda zara, again, from the word foreign or strange. Right? So you're with me on the, on the categories? Um, so basically what he's saying over here, um, and he's going to spell, spell this out a little bit more, and that is that there are three categories. There are those who are Jews, who have the Torah, who serve God. There are those who believe in a single God, even if they don't abide by the Torah, but they believe in this single God. And there are those who ignore, who de- deny this notion of a single God. Okay? Amru, And again, that's why they said, one who serves avoda zara, strangeness. Okay, um, anything in the world, whether it's the sun, whether it's the moon, whether it's angels, anytime it's something which is strange and foreign to God, anything, anytime you're going to serve something which is independent of God. 
If an individual were to go ahead and accept upon themselves to serve the Siba Rishona, meaning that prime cause, the first cause, Nikra Ger Toshav, the Torah itself has a different term that we use for them. There's a term that shows up in the Torah from time to time called a Ger Toshav. A Ger Toshav is like a, it's hard to translate, a Ger Toshav is like a, a, a resident stranger. Okay, it's like uh, someone who's there on a, you know, I, I'm not an American citizen, I'm here on a green card, right? So it's like, you have a green card, right? The Ger Toshav is a green card type of non-Jew, okay? So am I, I get social security, I have, you know, all the benefits, etc., etc. That's what a Ger Toshav is. A Ger Toshav is someone, they're not, they live in the land, they can live in the land of Israel, let's say, right? And they get many of the benefits of living in the land of Israel, and they are treated in an in a elevated fashion, and they don't have to accept that we're not expecting them to serve God, to, to, to adopt the mitzvot or anything of that nature, as long as, as long as they reject the notion of, uh, you know, a, 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 um, um, a collection of gods, as long as they believe in a singular God, and as we'll see a couple of bare bone rules, then we accept them as a ger toshav. Yes. Yes, which we're going to get into in a moment. Yes, excellent. Yeah. And this notion of this middle category of non-Jew, what he's trying to, he's trying to emphasize is that don't think that it's that when the Torah or the sages speak about Jews and non-Jews, just there's Jews and there's non-Jews. No. As we'll see, there are three categories and it's very fundamental that those three categories exist. There is a Jew, there is a non-Jew who is what we'll call a Ger Toshav, as a green card, basically has incredible amounts of, as we'll see, respect given to them and honor given to them and a whole set of laws. And then there is this other category called Ovdei Avodah those who deny monotheism. That's the third category. But he's trying to sensitize us to recognize that even already in the Torah itself, we find these divisions between different categories of non-Jews. Okay, Ksiv, for example, um, sorry, Afshe'emekayim Torahs Moshe, even though they don't keep the Torah, Rakshe'en Ovei Zulaso, as long as they're not serving, uh, you know, a different God, Nikra Ger Toshev, a Torah, they are called this, again, this green card, Carrier, this ger toshav in the Torah. Ksiv, for example, it says in the Torah, Kiyamach achicha umata yado imcha, vechzakta bo ger vetoshav vechai imach. Okay, so the Torah, this is the passage in the Torah, which speaks about charity, which speaks about supporting those who are in need. And it describes over there, not only do we support and provide for our fellow Jew, but also ger toshav. Uperish Rashi, Rashi there explains, afimu ger o toshav. Who is this Ger Toshav? Someone who did not accept upon themselves to not serve foreign gods, right? And as, as, as we'll see in a moment, uh, you know, it's going to include the seven mitzvot as well. Okay, but basically what he's trying to uh, highlight is two categories of non-Jews, okay? And that's the second category. The second category of non-Jews are those who um, believe in the monotheistic God, even if they don't accept the Torah. Yes. I'm sorry? What is Nevelos? Nevelos are, um, it, it touches upon one of the Shiva Mitzvahs, Nevelos, Nevela is, um, at, in general, it's a term for non, we use it as a term for non-kosher food, uh, for not like non, non-slaughtered food, I should say. Not non-kosher food, meaning you could have a cow which was not slaughtered properly. It's called a nevela. In this context, it seems like what he's referring to is one of the, the last of the seven mitzvot, which is aver minachai, that a non-Jew is not supposed to have uh, the, a limb taken from a, um, from a living thing, right? There's seven Noahide laws. Uh, one of them, actually, I just saw there's uh, some exquisite dish that was just, uh, just going around uh, that, that was prepared, that, that's a very exquisite dish in, in somewhere in the Near East. Um, and it's a fish, which is like 
part of it is fried, but part of it is kept alive. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, sorry. Uh, what's it called? Anyway, so there's like a picture of it like covered in these sauces, but its mouth is moving. Anyway, uh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, lunch will be served. No, just kidding. It's called <laughs> fine. Um, so anyway, the point is that's one of the no highlights. That's what he's referring to over here. Okay. Then he says, The third category, with the second paragraph on the second page, Again, they are the ones who serve these foreign gods. Perish. What this means is that they serve other, they serve other than the prime cause. When you see the word non-Jew in the Talmud, it's referring to this category, and understandably so. Nowadays, it's much more complex, but back then, 99% of non-Jews were serving, they did not believe in monotheism. It, it, it was a novel idea, which again comes through Judaism, which we'll get back to. But the point is that when, when the Talmud or the Mishnah speak about a non-Jew, they're speaking about those who are idolaters, because that's what the regular, again, 1500 years ago, that was the norm where they lived, okay? And the Torah throughout is consistently talking about this. All the nations would serve other gods, right? Back in the day, the notion of monotheism was incredibly novel. And everyone would be serving this Zeus, and they'd be serving this and that, or whatever, different gods. That was the norm. They did not separate themselves from serving these strange gods and serving anything else. This is what they did. But he says, parenthetically, this is, by the way, what the prayer of Aleinu Lishabeach, Shalohasanu Kigayeha Ratzos, all right, was composed about idolaters, about these people. And our commentators explain that Yoshua, Joshua, was the one who established this, right? And that's why we say it towards the end of Aleinu, right? What do we say? The next paragraph of Aleinu is, and therefore we wait, to remove idols from the land, right? So in order to remove all the idolatry, the focus is on idol worship. Right? Because Yoshua was praying that all of idolatry be removed from the world. Because again, all the nations of the world at the time were all serving idols. Now, you have to appreciate what he's doing over here. It's very subtle, but it's very important. Aleinu, Aleinu is an incredibly, I think we had, a, I gave a Shabbos morning drasha once about this, but, but Aleinu was an incredibly controversial prayer. You know, there's a line in Aleinu that we, that many take out, or if you recall, Shehem Ishtachavim Lehevel Varik, right? Yeah. So the Shul initially didn't have it, and I think I gave a lecture about why we took it out, and we started, and then there we say it again. What, what, why did they take it out? Because Aleinu for a while was banned in many Shuls, partially for that line. They understood the word, that line, Shehem Ishtachavim Lehevel Varik, uh, was a reference to in different ways, whether through uh, gematria, numerical values, or otherwise. But they understand they, the Christians claim that it was all that whole prayer was written in response to Jesus, right? That they that they you know that they pray to emptiness was a, a El Lo Yoshia, perhaps even a reference to Yesha, which is a, which is the English the Hebrew term for for Jesus, right? Basically, they understood that prayer to be. Uh, prayer that was against Christianity. And so in some shows, they, for a while, in different places, they weren't allowed to say Aleinu at all, at all, 
They took it out entirely. Okay, and uh, there is a lot of you know, uh, dis- you know, you have a lot of uh, letter, you know, um, discussion both from the Christian side, g- claiming that this prayer is blasting Christianity on the Jewish side, defending Alenu, and so one of the compromises that some places eventually adopted was they just took out that line because that line was so controversial they took it out. Now, the response to this whole thing is exactly what he's, he's alluding to over here, meaning this is well known in the Maral's time uh, because there are still places that were unable to say Aleinu. He's saying, by the way, Aleinu wasn't said about Christians, wasn't said about Muslims, it was said about idolaters, right? So that's why he's mentioning this over here. It's not just a random sidebar. In the context of telling us, hey, there are different categories of non-Jews from the Torah's perspective. There are idolaters. And then there are monotheists, right? He's saying, Aleinu was not written about the monotheists. It was written about idolaters, right? And how do I know that? Because our tradition tells us that it was written by Yoshua, right? And if it goes back to Yoshua, Yoshua precedes, predates uh, Christianity by a good, you know, uh, many, many years, thousands of years, essentially, uh, right? So basically, that's why he's mentioning it over here to emphasize the fact that this prayer, which was such a controversial prayer, is written for category three, not for category two, okay? Okay. Now, he says like this, Nimtza comes out. Here he summarizes. People, all of humankind is divided into three categories. One, those who desire to serve the first cause, i.e. God. Okay? To fulfill all the mitzvos. Okay, so that would be the Jewish people. The second category, they do not switch good for evil by serving anyone other than God. Ultimately, they serve God, even if it gets a little messy. Okay, but ultimately, they serve God. The third category, they switch things up, they mix things up, and they serve foreign entities instead of God. Okay. So with that understanding, now that we know that there are three categories, let's now bring it back to the halacha that we started this discussion with, right? The halacha was, the law, the Gemara Bava Kama told us that if my ox gores a non-Jew's ox, you don't have to pay. And we, just like the, the critics of the sages said, hey, that doesn't seem very just, that seems very wrong. So point number one that we now have to realize is that there are three categories of non-Jews, okay? Now let's go back to that passage, okay? So we're in the third page. And when it became clear, now that we've clarified that there are these three categories, any time, any time in the Talmud, any time in the Torah, unless the spell says otherwise, any time in the Mishnah, where it says something about a non-Jew, it's as if it said explicitly that we're talking about the third category, full-fledged idolaters. Those who chose to serve whatever they wanted, thinking that they're going to get their success from there, meaning idolaters. So whenever in the Talmud it has a comment about a non-Jew, we have to assume it's talking about idolaters. Because those who serve God, those who serve a single God, the one God, monotheists, right? They ultimately have, there's ultimately something that connects us to them, right? Do we have, we have something much more in common 
with Christians, with Muslims, than we do to someone who is serving, I don't know, something in, uh, you know, a cow in, in, in India. I don't know enough about, you know, uh, Near East faiths, but, but those who do not believe in that same concept of a prime cause, who do not believe in, in monotheism. There is a connection. If we all share one God, we, we have much more of a connection. And therefore, from this perspective, it made sense, liftar, to exempt, Therefore, when a Jew's animal gores an animal of the third category, which is the non-Jew discussed in the Talmud, category number three, he says it's actually logical, we'll explain why in a moment, that you, the, the Jew would be exempt in paying the idolater back. Why? He says, logically, and we could, we're going to debate this right now. We'll see if you agree with this. But he says, logically, am I really fully responsible for the actions of my animal? He says, this idea that I'm responsible for the actions of my animal, he claims, he says, that this, and again, it's, it's hard for us to even appreciate this because we're living today in 2023 after the Torah, after a legal system which was heavily influenced. We call it the Judeo-Christo legal system. Christo legal system. Our legal system today that we are comfortable with in the Western world was influenced by the Bible, by the Torah. But he says this idea that a person is responsible for the damages of their animal, he says, who says? Who says? He says, kefiladas v'asfara ala nizak lishmar he says, one can make an argument that it is the damagee, the one who is damaged, who is responsible to protect themselves. Maybe I am responsible to protect myself against damage. And let's say a person says, okay, I'm responsible to make sure no one hurts me. But how can I be responsible to make sure no one hurts my animal? Fair argument, right? Right? In other words, someone could say, yeah, I'm responsible to keep myself safe. Fine, that's true. I, I, I'm not, I can't walk into a dangerous situation. And therefore, if something dangerous happens to me, maybe it is my fault. But, but my animal, how am I supposed to really protect my animal? Right? So he says, Gamamazik, therefore the damager can make the same argument. The damager can say the same thing. Just like you have no real ability to protect your animal against all damages, I, the owner of the animal, could say, I also, I can't protect, make sure my animal doesn't go ahead and damage. Okay, let's pause over here. Let's, let's try to understand what he's saying. So basically what he's saying is that logically, if we would not have a Torah, and you and I, all of us over here in this room, we're creating a legal system, okay? So we're sitting down for the first time, and we have our new country, a country called Neratamid or the Neratamid Chapel. This is our new country. And we're going to make rules, okay? So what are the rules? So let's say, okay, if I punch you in the face, I'm going to be obligated to pay you back for all the damages. That makes sense, because I'm responsible, right? But animals are a little harder to control. Right? So let's say our animals go, let's say a child goes ahead. Let me ask you this. If my child goes ahead and, and hurts another child, right? Or breaks something, right? How responsible am I as a parent? It's an important discussion, right? Um, it's not so simple, right? And certainly in a setting where the child is allowed to be, right? If the child went ahead and went somewhere that the child wasn't supposed to be, okay. But if the child went somewhere where they're allowed to be, they went to one of the classrooms, and while they're a child, let's say right now, it's happening probably right now. I mean, the child, the, and if you walk into the social hall right now, you'll see kids ripping up the wallpaper of our, of our, of our beautiful social hall. Happens every week, right? Is the, are we going to go to the parents of the child and say, hey, they're ripping up the, the wallpaper? Not really because we brought them there, we allowed them to be there, and it's kind of on us to make sure that the, the social hall is built in a way that those who are normally there are not going to ruin it, right? 
can a per, right? Does that, that, that sounds fair, right? Can I make a similar argument about my animal and say, okay, listen, just like uh, I'm not responsible when my child goes ahead and does some damages, I'm also not responsible when my animal, again, back in the day, animals are roaming around and they come back home, whatever it is, my animal's going about doing its normal thing. Your animal's going about doing its normal thing. They're meeting up in the forest. They're not like, I'm not, um, <coughs> I'm not intruding in your private profit property. My animal is goring your animal, the non-Jews animal, in a forest. Am I really responsible for that? The Maral saying, no. Who says? Just like when my child does some damages, I'm not going to be held accountable or necessarily. Similarly, if my ox scores another ox, why should I be responsible? Do you agree? Disagree? What are your thoughts on this? Mm, yeah, maybe you cure it a little bit. Makes sense. Makes sense. Ah. Good, 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 good. Okay, now we have to figure out, good, now we have to figure out the opposite, right? So he's made such a compelling point. So why do we differentiate between Jew and non-Jew, right? Good, Irma's asking the million dollar question. The Maral's now pointing out, logic should dictate, if we were not of a Torah, if we were making our own kingdom and point and saying, just like my child is not responsible for breaking the social law, my ox is not responsible for goring your ox in public. Fine. So then why do we have to pay? Why is it that if my ox gores a Jewish ox, then I do have to pay back? Now that doesn't make sense. Right? We've, we've made it such a compelling point. Now we have to answer the opposite. Good. Now we're going to get into that. The Torah, though, does necessitate that we do have to pay back in a situation where there is some commonality and friendship. Why? Not because, um, uh, just, not because of justice, because from the perspective of justice, we've just shown it's not really necessary. But rather, since there is friendship, since there is a relationship, when we're very close, when we have a good relationship, there are times when I am not necessarily obligated to you, but as a friend, I want to pay you back. You know, someone called me the other day. I'll give you an example. Someone called me the other day. They borrowed, uh, their friends borrowed an urn from them for Shabbos. You know, an urn. They wanted to borrow for Shabbos. And while they owned, they borrowed the urn, it broke. They didn't do anything wrong. It just broke. Okay? So these are complex laws about what you're obligated to. Bottom line, according to halacha, according to Jewish law, if they didn't do anything irresponsible with that urn, they're not obligated to pay the owner back. Right? If they did something irresponsible, it's a different story. Right? But basically, they just used the urn like a regular urn on Shabbos. It broke. It broke. Uh, it happened to be it broke while they were using it. So really, they, so, so then this, the, the, the owner of the urn called me and said, does this person owe me a new one? I don't want any of their money. I, they're trying to buy me a new urn, and I don't want to take it from them. And the owner, the borrower was saying, I know I don't owe you, but I want to pay you something because I want to, right? What's going on over here? They're neighbors. They're friends. So they want to maintain a relationship. Technically speaking, no one owed anyone anything. The urn broke, it's too bad. It's just, whatever, it happens, right? But, but they both, you know, there, there is this notion, if you want to maintain friendship, sometimes you have to, you know, the system sometimes demands of us something a little bit different in order to ensure we don't just always go by the strict letter of the law, right? When you're in an argument with, uh, with a loved one, it's not about who's right and who's wrong. It's like, okay, that's justice. But that's not, in a relationship, the, the rules are changing a little bit, right? So that's what's going on. So he's saying the Torah obligates the individual to pay back a reya, a friend. Why? Uh, because if you don't, even if you're not, from a perspective of justice, liable, not paying back or allowing my animal to damage your animal is hepech hareos vachibra. It's the opposite of friendship. If I were to say, you're going to come, oh, you know, your animal just gore my animal. Okay, what do you want for my life? It's my animal. I have no responsibility. 
pasnish, right? I'm saying it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not, it's not right, right? If my child were to go ahead and break my neighbor's window, right? Whether or not I'm obligated, we could debate. I will pay them back, right? Because I, I, whatever, forget, you know, I want to, I want to maintain a normal relationship. I, you know, there, there's a certain sense of you want to maintain that connection. amra Torah, and that's why the Torah said, That's why the Torah explicitly says when an ox scores the ox of a friend. To emphasize, it's not about, it's not about the, the notion, it's not about the, 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 what's really owed. It's not about justice. It's about friendship over here. Right? So uh, let me just read one more line and then we'll, well, you know, let me just unpack this a little bit. So what he's saying over here is as follows. If a Jew's ox would gore the ox of a Christian or a Muslim, according to this idea, you would be obligated to pay back. Right? You would. You would. Yes, indeed. Yes. For the reason because there is this connection. There's this race. We have to explain this in a moment, what this means. But because of this friendship, because of this connection, Whereas if someone is an Oveda of Odazara, if someone rejects the notion of idolatry, of, of, of monotheism, you do not, that's the person that the Gemara was telling us you do not have to pay, or the Torah was telling us you do not have to pay back. Now again, let's just, before I explain this further, I just want to emphasize. From the perspective of justice, really you don't owe anything at all, right? And the, it's more from the perspective of reus, of friendship, that's where the obligation is coming from. And that's why it says re'ehu. Okay, now, now what's going on over here? One more line and then we'll unpack this a little bit more. He says, He wants to be clear. It is absolutely forbidden to steal from any non-Jew, even a category three. All the Gemara is over here telling us is that if my animal goes and damages their animal, I'm exempt. It is not a free-for-all, heaven forbid, to say you could steal from a non-Jew. No way. Even if they're idolater, even if they're whatever, it doesn't matter, right? So I just want to be clear, and he wants to be clear. It's talking about this particular example where an animal is goring another animal, and there we could have a logical argument to say really you should be exempt. The reason you're obligated is because of reus, because of friendship. I'll give you a similar example, and then we'll explain this a little bit more, this, this notion of justice and friendship. There is, a, there is a rule, a very, very controversial halacha, and that is that you are not allowed to uh, lend an, another Jew with interest, okay? And you are allowed to lend others with interest. Now, this has been the cause of a lot of uh, uh, heartache and controversy and Shakespearean books and whatever, uh, all about this, right? The fact that we're lending, that, you know, in, in, throughout, many, throughout much of history, lending with interest because of the Torah was seen as something that was Evil, something that was wrong, right? Now, let me ask you a question. Is lend, so the, the Ramban already writing this hundreds of years ago points out, is lend, if, if I lend you my car, right? And uh, not lend you, if I rent you my car, okay? And you pay me, I don't know, $50 a day, okay? Would anyone say that's evil? No, you're using the car and therefore there's a price to pay, right? You want the car, great, you pay me, right? And even everyone agrees, that's, that's called renting. That's totally fine. Why is renting money different? If I'm, I'm lending you my money, I'm lending you my money. You want to use it, you want to go invest in something for, you take my money for 10 years. You want to go invest in 10 years, you're going to pay me back the $20,000, right? So you're using my money, just like you're using my car. So why can't I charge you, just like I rent out my car, I could rent out my money. Yes. Um, the car is property and people use property for, to, to, get an in, to get an income. Similarly, even with animals, you, you can, quote-unquote, profit from what the animals produce. Mm-hmm. 
Can't you profit from money? I invest in stocks. I invest in a business. It's also property. It's, it's more intangible, but it's, it's also something which I own, which could bring about every... If, could you let me, if you have, you have some money set aside for your retirement funds or whatever it is, could you just give me that money for free for, for a little while? No, because it's, it's provi- it brings you interest. And if you want, you can go ahead and take that money and buy something. You know, money has value, right? That's, that's the whole premise of, I mean, that's the whole premise of interest. Yes? Is the word rent or lend uh, yeah, but I'm pointing, yes, yes, but I'm pointing out that really they're the same thing. Conceptually, they, they could and should be the same thing. It should be. It should be. When they say to the person, I'm going to lend you money. Correct. I'm going to rent you money. No one says that, but I, I'm just, right, correct, correct. And so there is a difference. There is, a, I'm not disagreeing. There ultimately is a difference because the Torah allows us to rent. I'm allowed to rent my car to you. I'm not allowed to lend you money on interest, right? So there is a difference. I don't even focus on the difference. I just want to focus on the fact and this is what the Ramban says. The Ramban says, when the Torah says you're allowed to lend a non-Jew with interest, don't see it as we're doing, like, the Christians see that as, oh, we're allowed to do something which is, you know, immoral to non-Jews. He says, no. The whole idea that you're not allowed to lend your, a Jew with interest is because the Jews are seen as our immediate family. And with immediate family, sometimes you, you have to, you, there's room to be a little bit more forgiving. Right? In other words, it's not that lending with interest is immoral. It's that lending without interest is something that we do as a family. If your brother, you know, sister comes along and wants to borrow money, it would be even not, you know, anyone would say to lend them with interest would be a little bit strange. It's just who would do that? It's not, it's not a normal thing to do. So we're meant to see the Jewish people as our family. And therefore, for whatever reason, specifically money, we're told, okay, you have to rent money. And I, you know, I'm using that term loosely, but you're allowed, you must rent money without charging interest. But not because charging interest is immoral. There's nothing immoral with renting money out, just like I can rent my car out. It's just that with those close to us, we're going to have a different set of ideas. And that's similar to the idea over here. Similar, but different. We'll see in a second. Similar in the sense that really an ox scoring another ox you should not be liable, right? And therefore, the whole premise of the question is mistaken. So why then, as Irma asked, are we more, for, do we have to pay back when my ox scores the ox of my friends, Re'ehu, so to speak? Because since there's this connection between us, I have to go ahead and demonstrate that closeness because to maintain that closeness. But not again, it's, and so again, you're not allowed to steal from a non-Jew, no, don't, don't, don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Heaven forbid. What it means is in scenarios where justice would dictate, I don't have to pay back. If they are an idolater, I genuinely don't have to pay back. Okay. But let, let's take this a little bit deeper. There's, there's a much deeper idea over here that, 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 that really is, is um, that needs to be explained. Let's go back. We'll, we'll learn a, a different piece from the Maharal, Maharal just uh, orally. Uh, not, not a piece that he talks about over here. Let's talk about Avram Avinu for a second. Okay. Abraham, Avram, Avram, and Sarah. They have, how do they teach people about monotheism? How do they go about and do so? What's, what's their technique? They invite them for meals. Yeah. They invite them for meals, right? They have the famous tent. And all the travelers who are starving, thirsty, whatever, they come into their tent. And the Gemara tells us, you know, this is, this is how the, the Midrashim tell us what happens. They come to the tent and uh, Avram and Sarah feed them. And then they, you know, they, and they take care of them and they spend time with them, you know, both, both physical, emotional. It's amazing. And then at the end of the meal... They're like, wow, think, can we pay you? Don't pay me. They're like, what? Don't pay me? This is amazing. Oh, we're so grateful. You know, they think it's a regular inn, but there's no charges in, at this inn, right? So no charges at this restaurant. They're like, wow, how can we thank you? And Avram says, don't thank me. Thank God. Okay, that's the way we're taught this medrash as a child. 
it almost, it sounds a little gimmicky. I always, you know, as you get a little older, it sounds a little gimmicky. This is like, you know, the, uh, you find this a lot with certain faiths where they perhaps will, you know, they'll, they'll look out for those who are most vulnerable. And then once you're, you know, it's, it's almost like more than gimmicky. It might even be like a little, you can see it cynically that, you know, they're, they're reach, you know, these people are traveling through the deserts. They're starving. They're being fed. And now they're in this very vulnerable situation. They say, oh, serve God, right? There's, there, there, there's more to it. Yeah. yeah. When somebody invites me to dinner, I bring a gift. And they say, please stop, Adele, I'm not talking about you. <laughs> please stop bringing me something for the meal. I said, then don't invite me. <laughs> okay, 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 good. So let, let's talk about why people invite people. So, so this is a friend of yours, right? So, yeah, okay, <laughs> fair enough. Uh, <laughs> fair enough. So, so let's talk about gifts or inviting someone. Let's, let's take a step back. I want to take a step back to the story of Avram and Sarah. I, the model explains it's not a gimmick. You know, the world outside of monotheism, if you don't believe in monotheism, one of the primary ideas of monotheism is that everything comes from God. Good and evil, but also all of us come from God. That means that while we might have independent nations, but ultimately, ultimately, we all come from the same people or the same ultimate source, which is God. That means there is a certain brotherhood, a certain connection between all of us, right? So if you do not believe in monotheism, if you believe whatever, however the world came into being, came into being, but then there is this nation which has their gods, and this nation which has their gods, and this nation has their gods, right? This is what we call a zero-sum game, right? Because a zero-sum game means like, if I win, you lose. If you win, I lose, right? There is no sense of brother, because we're, we're not connected. There is this force, there is this nation, there's this God. There's this force, there's this nation, there's this God. And which God's going to win, right? If you ever read any Greek mythology, it's not like, no one's, there's no kumbaya, no one's getting together. Everyone's just trying to blow apart the other party, right? And, and trick them and whatever it is, right? That is a world without monotheism is a world of, of absolutes, of, of fighting one force out over the other, right? You with me, right? So when Avram comes along and, and does something, now, if we live in such a world, the notion of giving food to a stranger doesn't make any sense. Why, why would you do that? In other words, if we lived in the ancient world, a world of very clear delineations between, you know, this God and this God and therefore this nation, this nation, why would I go ahead and give you food? It, 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 it's, it's not only it, like it, empty, it's, like, it, it's counterproductive. In other words, I am, I'm going to assist the other God Right? Why, why would I do that? I'm going to assist the, na- the other nation. That is, in essence, making me lose. Right? Avram comes along and says, no, I'm going to give to a complete stranger. I'm going to be a giving person. And what Avram is trying to open their eyes to is the fact that we are actually all are connected. That it isn't a zero-sum game. There isn't this eternal battle between different forces. But I value you just like you value me. I don't have to conquer you. There is value, right? When Avram goes ahead, there's one great war and he comes in and he wins and everyone says, okay, well, take all the slaves. And everyone says, no, you deserve your own independence. I deserve my own independence. We're all human beings, right? You and I take that so for granted. What I'm saying over here is not so novel. But in a world where that is the most crazy idea in the world, we have to recognize how appreciate how radical Avram Avinu and Sarah were to teach people, right? And so it wasn't a trick it wasn't, ah, oh, now you're thanking me, thank God. He was emulating God. He was showing the, the value, the, the core moral uh, you know, principle, uh, expression of monotheism is kindness, is that I could care about someone who isn't my clan, who isn't my family, who isn't my, you know, my nation. I could care about them. Because if I believe there's one source, then we're all connected. 
There, anytime you lose, I lose. Anytime I lose, you lose. And if you win, I win as well. We're all together, right? So Avram's tent was a reflection of monotheism. It wasn't a gimmick. It was a reflection of monotheism, right? So in a monotheism, we have to appreciate, is the, is the engine of morality in the world, right? It's not a coincidence that nations like, that, that reject a notion of God are going to be much more, you know, and have this, you know, are much more um, violent and much more, you know, and, and you know, the, 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 the nations which, you know, communist nation, you know, when, if you believe in some form of communism and, you know, you reject the notion of God, why should I care about anyone else? Doesn't make sense, mm-hmm. right? It's only, it's only when you believe in some level of God that you're able to go ahead and say, okay, and therefore there is a relationship between you and me. And therefore I have to think twice before going ahead and destroying the nation next to me. Right. Um, okay. So the, the, the point is that uh, you know that 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 you know that the belief in a god is meant to is properly understood is 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 what allows for a connection between groups. Right. And therefore, what what the Maral is saying over here that shore ehu that when I my ox scores your ox, we are connected. It's 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 much deeper than that. It's saying that you you be, you also believe like I believe that we are connected over here. It's not just that we're friends. It's that we believe that there's an interconnectedness in the world. If there's an interconnectedness in the world, we want to maintain that interconnectedness. But those who reject that interconnectedness, those who say, no, it's a zero-sum game. My gain is your loss, your loss is my gain, et cetera, et cetera. The person who truly serves idols and rejects the notion of monotheism, then they would say, you know, I, I want to protect what's mine. You protect what's yours. And therefore, there is no reason that I have to go ahead and pay when my animal impacts their animal because there is no connection between us. It's everyone, every person for themselves. Is this making sense? Mm-hmm. Following this? Yeah? So with the morale over here, again, so let's just, let's just quickly summarize what, what, what's, what's happening over here and then we'll have to wrap up. With the morale, again, this, this last piece is, is a very controversial piece uh, because but the whole notion is a controversial. How does Judaism perceive other nations? Um, and the, but the morale and there are others before him, the Me'iri and others, argue that when the Gemara speaks about non-Jews, it was specifically referring to full-fledged idolaters, those who are pagan worshipers, polytheists, not monotheists, not people who believe in one God. Why is it so fundamental to believe in one God? Because when we believe in one God, uh, then when you believe in, in different gods and, and no monotheism, then basically, you know, then, then it makes sense to say each person for themselves because that is the core of that belief. When you are a monotheist, you believe that we're all connected. That makes sure, that, that by definition injects a sense of compassion into the legal system. So again, you and I, the civil system that exists here in America is predicated on such a worldview. It's the whole constitution is predicated on the value of each person. We take that for granted. We shouldn't. Those things, the, 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 the fact that these things exist are reflection or because the world was impacted by the Torah. But, you know, all of those ideas, it's not just a coincidence that Western societies are going to be uh, caring more about world peace. Whereas societies which reject, you know, monotheism care less about world peace. It's not a coincidence. You ever think about that? Why do regimes that reject the notion of one God why are they more intent on, you know, weapons and, and whatever? And other nations are more, not, not consistently, right? There's Iran who believes in monotheism. You know, there's, there are exceptions. But as a general rule, more so you'll find nations that, as a general rule, a nation which does not believe in one God does not care about peace, typically, right? It's, whereas it's a value. The U.S. has spent, and we could debate if it's a good idea or not, but trillions of dollars to ensure world peace since World War II. That good idea, bad idea, we could debate. But it comes from a very, you know, monotheism. It comes to the fact that we have to care about other nations. That's, that's a, 
main point that he's making, which I think is such an important point to recognize the impact of morality, that monotheism brings about a certain morality that, that paganism does not. Um, and I think that's such an important idea to think about. Uh, but the other idea which he's trying to uh, uh, you know, open our eyes to is that when the, Torah, when the Talmud speaks about non-Jews, it's not referring to fellow monotheists. It's speaking to pagan worshipers who um, have a much more negative and cynical worldview, and therefore some of their cynical worldview is reflected in the laws of how we interact with them. Okay, so that's the last passage. Just want, I'm not, I didn't translate the last passage. I just want to summarize uh, the last passage. If you have a chance to read it in Hebrew, if you could read it in Hebrew, great. Um, in the last passage, he just has a beautiful little piece here where he, the la- final words of this book, where he speaks about open inquiry. And what he's speaking to is that he says, anyone who's asking, the worst thing, again, this whole book was addressing controversial questions. You know, many would say, I mean, I, I'll be honest, I hesitated to study this last piece, right? Because why would I show you a passage that says that the Talmud says some negative things about non-Jews. Better we don't know about it. Sometimes ignorance is bliss, right? But, you know, so maybe, maybe, maybe I shouldn't have. The Maharal over here finishes the book by saying, no, we never stifle any questions. He says stifling questions is the most foolish thing you could do. Stifling question, if someone has a question, there's a valid question out there, um, even if it's a heretical question, even if the premise of the question is based on a lack of belief in God. First of all, answer, allowing the question to be asked, asked allows us to sharpen our answer. Right? Our knowledge, the more we, we allow ourselves to be challenged, the more we're forced ourselves to really crystallize our belief. Right? As a child, maybe I believe in God. And then we get a little older and we start, hey, there's evil here. Right? So I have to revisit my initial belief and I come to a deeper, hopefully a more profound, complicated, but also deeper, richer belief in God. Right? So questions, he said, sharpen and deepen our experience and knowledge. So first of all, there's value in that. But he says, second of all, it's a bad look. It's not a good PR uh, approach. You know, it's, it's not good for public relations. Why? Because if we say, no, don't ask this question, then it appears as if we don't have an answer. He says, on the contrary, he says, if you're a warrior, if you're like a wrestler, he says, if you're a warrior, okay, he's writing this in the 1600s, not the way we would speak or think, but if you're a warrior, if you're a wrestler, right, or whatever, and you want to show your strength, then how do you show your strength? You say, bring the strongest guy here and I'll wrestle him, right? That's the only way you show your strength. So a person who is unwilling to, uh, you know, tackle difficult questions is saying basically, I'm weak. I don't have what to stand behind. He says, we should feel confident in our Jewish sources, in our tradition, in the, in the wealth of knowledge that exists. And therefore, we should never be shy of questions. On the contrary, A, questions sharpen us, but B, we could, we could address any question that's asked. And if we don't, then it demonstrates that we're lacking in our confidence, in our self-confidence of what Judaism really is. And the whole purpose of this book, really, if you want to take one meta message, is to be confident in, you know, sometimes we'll read passages which seem strange, which seem bizarre, which seem immoral. You know, what he's been trying to do is give us little tiny windows, uh, you know, picked, cherry-picked, a passage here, a passage there, just to show you it's not foolish at all. Actually, some of these ideas are incredibly profound, and you just spend time to think about them. And it's not immoral. On the contrary, it's incredibly just. And the other perspective, perhaps, is immoral. His goal was to open our eyes just a little bit so we could feel a little bit more confident in our Torah, in the tradition of our sages. And I hope that's, if you take one takeaway, if that's the lasting impression, that's really what he's trying to impress upon us, that we should recognize that there have been answers. All the questions, many questions have been asked. Don't be shy to ask the questions, but don't be lazy to find the answers. It'll only help sharpen our own experience and demonstrate the incredible strength and power of the Torah that stands behind us. So thank you for joining me on this very uh, difficult journey. Learning this book is not not an easy book. I know some of these pastors were hard. We're going to go next. We'll talk about the, the, again about the uh, Megillus Esther, a little bit lighter, a little bit easier. And then the Haggadah, 
always a wonderful book and to give you, I think, a, a meaningful overview of the Haggadah. And then after Pesach, we'll probably switch to something more partial oriented. So I, I commend you for, for sticking out the journey. Uh, again, I know this was not easy and uh, a little difficult at times, but thank you for giving me an opportunity. Yes, Esther.